everybody and welcome to JTV. Well, I'm really thrilled to say that we are joined once again by probably one of the most influential rabbis, certainly in America, but perhaps even throughout the world. Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, we had him on JTV. I uh, was in America at the time and I met you, Rabbi, in person in Monsey. Um, it's great to have you on again, this time virtually. Great to see you. My honor and pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Well, thank you for making the time to be here. Um, Rabbi, obviously these are very challenging and difficult times. Uh, the first question I just want to ask is, how are you and what, what's on the forefront of your mind right now? The Jewish people have been affected on a core level. Um, the fact is that we in America, and I think Jews all over the world, obviously in Israel, but all over the world, thousands of kilometers away from Gaza and southern Israel, when we heard of the atrocities and the horrific, horrific mini Holocaust of October 7th, 2023, the Jewish world responded with visceral pain and anguish. Uh, on one level, it's been overwhelming for so many sleepless nights, fear, concern, uh, deep anxiety, deep pain. On another level, I just have to say, I think the pain that we're feeling is the pain that comes from the love that we have towards each other. Basically, what I have seen in the last few weeks is that the organism we call Am Yisrael, the Jewish people, is alive and kicking. It's functioning well. No part has been amputated because the entire Jewish world has been shaken to the core. Jews have been feeling more Jewish than they have in any time that I remember my lifetime. Jews have been responding in a way that I don't think we ever responded both emotionally and spiritually and practically. And I think what that tells us is that the organism called the Jewish people is very, very much vibrant and alive, and that our calling is to remain united and become united like never before in history, and to become more Jewish like never before in history. Thomas Paine wrote, you know, there are times that try men's souls. Times of crisis bring out the worst in some people. People marching in London and other places of the world, you know, from river to sea, Palestine shall be free, basically calling for the genocide of the Jewish people. And times of adversity bring out the best in other people. And I think this is the time, you know, this way I experience, and I think it's really the calling for each of us to show up as the best version of ourselves, united with resilience and resolve and courage and faith and determination like never before. I couldn't agree more. And that's the space I I'm trying to... That's the space I'm trying to live in. I think that's where we should all attempt to, to, to live uh, with, with such darkness. We have to hold on and be anchored in something that is indestructible and eternal and remember that we have each other. Absolutely. Um, and I want to talk about some tough questions we need to ask about what's happening now, questions about how we respond to some of the really... Uh, disturbing things we've seen and and spiritual questions as well but before we do that let's talk about some of the light as well i think that the jewish unity that we've seen has been in some ways certainly in my lifetime and, and yours as well pretty unprecedented can you just talk to us about some of the we're seeing a lot of darkness we're also seeing a lot of light and i think it's important we start with that what are your reflections on the jewish unity we've seen 
it's incredible. Listen, there's an ancient teaching in Judaism. It's 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 discussed in the Talmud. It's discussed at length in, in Kabbalistic and Hasidic literature that the Jewish people constitute one soul manifested in many diverse bodies. I grew up studying this because I grew up at the feet of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and this was something he probably said almost every week. And it became a little cliche, you know? Yeah, we're one soul, we're all one, we're, we're connected, but you know, but you know, we disagree, we know how to fight with each other. <laughs> we know how to argue with each other. You know, two Jews, 19 opinions, shalom aleichem, aleichem, shalom. I think what we have all viscerally experienced since Simchas Torah, since October 7th this year is how true this is. <laughs> this is literally the truth. Everything else is exaggeration. Mm-hmm. Of course we have differences, but our differences are ultimately superficial. Not that they're not, not that they're not meaningful and not that they don't matter and not that they don't count and not that they will disappear for eternity. I don't think after this war, all Jews are going to agree about everything. But what I think we all realized in a very experiential way, I'm not talking now academically, intellectually, on a cerebral level, in a very emotional and physical, tangible, visceral way is that this is the truth about ourselves. The truth is we are really one neshama. We are one large organism manifested in like a soul in different limbs and different bodies and different countries and different personalities and different opinions and different levels of observance. And in a tragic way, what triggered that in such a profound way was, I'm going to try not to cry, was to watch Hamas, to watch Hamas, to watch the glee in slaughtering every single type of Jew you can get your dirty hands on, a child to an elderly woman or man, left-wingers, right-wingers, radical left-wingers, women who are sending toys for Arab children living in Gaza, Jews in some of Kibbutzim who dedicated their lives to coexistence, to elevating the dignity of what they called their neighbors in Gaza were slaughtered with the same joy and tortured with the same glee like any other Jew. And we ask ourselves this question, what is it that unites us all? Just a few weeks earlier in Israel, there was demonstration after demonstration where some people suggested that we should splinter into two nations, like the southern kingdom and the northern kingdoms in the time after King Solomon's death, Rechavim and Yeravim in the, in, the, in the Hebrew Bible, in the book of Kings. So people were talking about that. And suddenly we realized, Hamas doesn't see it that way. What unites us all? And one more question. Why do they hate us all with such passion? What is it? that every single Jew possesses that they want to slaughter and murder and eliminate from the earth and they will not rest until they can achieve these monstrous evil goals. And of course, we all know the answer, but now we felt the answer. And the answer is that there is an infinite divine holiness, goodness, purity embedded in every Jewish soul. And that's our truest part. It's our truest essence. It's our most authentic self. They challenged us to feel that part because that's what they feel. That's what they're allergic to. That's what they hate. That's what they want to destroy. It's why Mengele didn't distinguish what type of Jew goes to the gas chambers. I don't care if you call yourself an atheist or a believer, a Hasidic Jew, an ultra-Orthodox Jew, a completely secular atheistic Jew. You're a Jew. And when you look at the world's response, the horrific, horrific apathy or indifference or barbaric immoral expressions, 
you see exactly the same thing. You and that teaches us who we are. So I think with all the darkness, I want to ask my ego that as calmer days welcome us, I, we should never forget that authentic, authentic truth, which is I want to kiss and hug every single Jew just because he or she is Jewish. It's enough. It's enough. You know how I know it's enough? Hamas taught us if you are Jewish enough for you to be murdered with such a glee, you are Jewish enough for me to be here for you and for you to be here for me. And I think we should never, ever forget this because it is essential for our survival. And most importantly, it's essential for our spiritual rejuvenation. We were not designed to be a splintered people. We were not designed to be fragmented. We were designed to have differences of opinion. I know that. <laughs> but we were not designed to hate each other. Yeah. Incredibly powerful, uh, what you just had to say there, Rabbi. Um, it's so important we put that at the forefront of our, our minds. And I think this has been a real paradigm shift, October 7th. It's made us realize certain things. And it's also, we've also seen, or we are seeing some of the false idols, particularly of the Western world, starting to collapse or reveal themselves for who they are. And I couldn't help but think of that, particularly around certainly things like celebrity culture, sports culture, um, NGOs, and uh, but in particular, the universities. And I know certainly uh, the Chabad, the uh, Babacha Rebbe um, was certainly had a, di didn't, uh, let's say, hold this, this idea of widespread going to universities en masse as this kind of great ideal. It's and funny. Many, many parts of the religious world didn't. And a lot of people looked at that and said, what are you talking about? It's, it's an idol in many ways. And I'm not, you know, di di um, saying that it's bad for everyone to do go to universities. It's, it's appropriate for many fields, but like this glorification of it. What, what do you have to say about yeah. the lack of wisdom? It's amazing in yeah. universities. Yeah, it's, it's, it's beyond astounding and mind staggering because these are places that they're raised on the Yetra. Their mission statement was a higher education an enlightened education, ability to look at things from a broader perspective, from an expansive point of view, a vantage point that is not narrow, it's not indoctrinated, it's not influenced by the city or home you grew up in. And what we're seeing is today that the most narrow-minded places, places that simply do not tolerate diversity, never mind places that are saturated, with such bigotry and no problem to lie. And the first basic premise of education, of enlightenment is what? Curiosity, inquisitiveness. Find out the facts, think about the facts, explore, explore, just explore. Don't reach conclusions. It's gone, it's out the window. The foundational premise is Israelis are Nazis. Hamas are the righteous people. And the ability for young people, for professors, for presidents of universities, for 32 universities in the United States of America, to have enlightened students who are such educated, sophisticated people, 
not to be able to look you in the eye and say, this is evil. To slit the throat of a baby is evil. It's evil. This context, context, context. Wow. So when I was growing up, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, I would say, would mock the glorification of university. Now, he himself went to university. He studied in Berlin till the rise of Hitler. He was in Berlin from 1927, 1928 till 1933. Then he left to Paris, and he was in Paris till 1941. He, he did studied. engineering, right? Engineering, mathem- uh, yeah, mathematics, engineering, and I think some other, some other fields in science. And, uh, and he would speak about university and, you know, the, 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 the myth that so many Jews felt that to be a mensch, if you want to make sure that your son or daughter will be a mensch, you know, a, a real mensch, you know, not just an old shtetl, fachnucked, archaic, fahakta, you know, middle-aged Jew from the dark ages who's primitive and clueless and just, I don't know. <laughs> you want to be a mensch, you want to be integrated, you want to be a success story. You want to understand diversity. And the Rebbe would speak about it with such disdain. And I have to say, there were many who didn't understand because the Rebbe was a very sophisticated person. Everybody knew it. Sometimes you have a rabbi who's very narrow-minded and very parochial. Okay! But the Rebbe was not that person. You know, he could meet presidents and leaders and journalists and essayists and scientists. He was at home in the world of physics and mathematics and psychology and biology and cosmology and astronomy and engineering, biology, medicine. He could, you saw that he, he knew his stuff, as they say in America, they say in English. And yet he had this, this disdain. It was hard for some people to understand. Today, when I look around, I'm like, wow, wow. People are spending $100,000 a year or $80,000 a year to send their children to places where they may come back and not know the difference between Winston Churchill and Adolf Hitler not know the difference between Osama bin Laden, Yasser Arafat, the Ayatollahs of Iran, the murderers of Hamas and Hezbollah, and a Jewish child whose only crime is that he has Jewish blood flowing through his sinews. We don't know the difference. There's just two sides and everybody is frustrated. That's what I'm paying over four years to send my kids to be indoctrinated by such horrific insanity? And I tell Jewish philanthropists, Jewish philanthropists who have done well since the Holocaust, have invested and poured tens of millions of dollars into universities because as Jews, we believe in education, right? We believe in We believe in education. That's our thing. Education, education, the people of the book wow, maybe it's time to put that money into our schools, (laughs) into our day schools, into our yeshiva, send all of our children there so they can come out with a basic understanding that there's a difference between good and evil for heaven's sake, that Hitler and Churchill are not the same people. And doesn't mean Churchill is perfect and is a saint. But the the, the people in the Warsaw Ghetto, somebody did a, a mockery headline from a newspaper, condemning the Jews who made an uprising in the Warsaw Ghetto because they are inflaming the Germans. (laughs) They are creating such a culture of violence. Why are you making an uprising in the Warsaw Ghetto? That's what people want from Israel, right? Just sit back 
and die. We had a president, a former president, who said by Israel fighting Hamas, they're creating a new generation of jihadists who are going to hate Israel because they're going in and killing Hamas. Wow, what a brilliant idea. America and Britain should have not gone into Germany in 1945 because that would create a whole new generation of Germans who despise the United Kingdom and the United States of America. Why don't we just all go to the gas chambers? Hamas says we're going to do it again and again and again. And we all know if they would have it their way. What happened on Simchas Torah, they would do every single day and they would have every day Simchas Torah until 6.6 million Jews in Israel lay lifeless and then they would continue to the rest of the world. When you see that places of higher education can't have that basic understanding. And the moment, the moment you get into a conversation, there is such a blindness. You know, somebody said, oh, Israel never made mistakes. Of course, Israel constantly makes mistakes. And the biggest mistake of Israel was all the appeasement over the years in Oslo and Gush Katif. That was their greatest mistake. Israel makes mistakes. And Israel is far, far from perfect. But this inability to be able to distinguish between horrific evil and a country trying to defend itself as I would go on for years. Not one human being in Gaza would be killed. If Tzahal goes on vacation for one day, not one Jew in Israel would remain alive. You would think this is pretty basic stuff. (laughs) And this is pretty objective. I don't think anybody would disagree with this. Everybody knows this. And yet, the inability to distinguish this, it's, it's extremely, extremely painful. But let's remember... Our job is not to allow our energy be to, to, our energy be, to be depleted by trying to incessantly persuade people who are simply too brainwashed or too full of trauma and hate to look at anything besides what has been fed into their brains for many, many years. We need to remain focused. We need to remain authentic. We need to remain in a place of absolute courage, confidence, faith, decisive determination of knowing what's right, what's wrong, what is our mission. Every one of us has been drafted into an army since Simchas Torah. The only question we have to ask is, what division I have been drafted into? Yeah, yeah. And Rabbi, I think part of what's so remarkable about what's happening with universities, for me in some ways, it's a bit of a not, maybe Kiddush Hashem isn't quite the right word, but certainly a revelation of godliness because we're seeing how without fear of God, without reverence for God, you know, the beginning of wisdom is fear of God, as we say every morning, reverence for God. Tehillim, just, Hashem. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. It's just absolutely when, when, remarkable when, when, to see it. It's absolutely remarkable when there's no moral, there's no, there's no moral objective definition of good and evil because how can you? Everything is relative. Yeah. And Rabbi, and what do you say to those the who say... basic truths can be abolished. Right, right, exactly. So I want to know, what do you say to those who say, because it, it, just as you touched on in your previous answer, there seems to be this dominant thinking of both sides. We've got to hear from both sides. and bo- Like, no, sometimes there is one, one side is right and one side is objectively wrong. What do you say to those who say... Absolutely. Always would, somebody say would somebody say in 1944 and 45... There is the German perspective, and there is the British perspective or the American perspective. That itself is 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 a heinous. It's a heinous, despicable statement. Where does Who it come from? Started the war in 1939. Where does it come from that people think this way? 
I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a sociologist, and I don't know the answer to that. I can only say and speculate. There's probably more than one answer. I think it's a combination of a few factors. Number one, I think when you are determined to eliminate all God and all traditional morality, what we might call biblical morality from the conversation of humanity, from higher education, the mind is capable of doing anything. Mm. When Hitler got up and spoke about his mission statement, he didn't say, I am an evil monster. I'm a tyrant. I'm a dictator. Joseph Stalin didn't believe he was evil. Just Hamas, they feel like they're doing Allah's work, God's work. People don't say, we hate Jews because we're horrible people and Jews are wonderful people and we want to destroy them. No, they say because Jews are bloodsuckers, because they're moneylenders, because they're monsters, because they're engaging in genocide and apartheid, because they killed the Christian Messiah, because they poison our wells, because they're racist, because they think they're the best and they want to kill everybody else because they steal everybody's money. The mind is capable of concocting any truth. The mind is a very, you know, we love the mind, but be careful, be suspicious. That's why it says in Psalms, the genesis of wisdom is the awe of God. When we lose that, and today's Western world has lost that, everything gets destroyed. There's no definition you can't think anymore about good and evil. Hamas suddenly becomes the victim. Israel is the perpetrator. I can't believe it. And these are intelligent people, people I like, <laughs> people who are, who, are, who are kind. I think that's one aspect. Another aspect is the Arab world in the last few decades has magnificently poured enormous amounts of money and resources to create a global network, especially in the world of academia, that would consistently demonize Israel and turn the perpetrators into the victims. I told my wife last night, you know, this world has holiness and unholiness. I said, what the Lubavitcher Rebbe did with his Chabad houses around the world, creating networks of Jewish love in every corner of the universe, those monsters did it with the Palestinian narrative. People don't realize, Jews don't realize, when we were busy arguing with each other, <laughs> they created cheers, academics, literature, groups, influencing academia Mm. and education on the deepest level. We're just just figuring this out now. And therefore, completely, completely dominating the conversation and touching the idealistic chords of young students who want to fight for something real and fight for the underdog and really completely overwhelming them and brainwashing them. I think another component has to do with, and I say this very painfully, with a weakness that has infiltrated into Israeli society and culture and leadership. The founders of Israel knew very much, knew very well, that millions of people living around them want to murder them. And if they would have the ability, they would do to the Jews what the Nazis did to the Jewish people. Ben-Gurion knew this. All his people around him knew it. Whether they were left-wing or right-wing, they all knew it. A new generation grew up in Israel and began altering that narrative because they so dreamt of peace. And they suddenly started to legitimize 
their neighbors saying they want peace just like us. They just want a piece mm -hmm. of land. And that became the philosophy behind the whole appeasement philosophy of Israel, which turned out to be not just disastrous, but it literally created bloodbaths in Israel from all the suicide bombings to terror attacks to Hamastan in Gaza. So many things that Israel has to do today comes as a result of the weakness that we displayed over decades. And it came from the top. It went into the journalism of Israel. It went into the university system of Israel. And it came from an inherent inferiority complex, starting to embrace the other side and asking themselves, maybe we are thieves. Maybe we are colonizers. And that is a big, big tragedy because when Jews don't know who they are, when they forget their history, their faith, their tradition, I believe every Jewish child needs to study every day the school. They should open up with studying the first Rashi. Rashi was the greatest biblical commentator lived in the 11th century in France. And the first Rashi, he says, the whole reason why the book of Genesis was written, it's superfluous, there's no laws, it's just stories, was that one day the nations of the world will turn to the Jewish people and say, listen, Atem, you are a bunch of thugs because you are conquering land that does not belong to you. And the entire book of Genesis was written to give the Jewish people an answer to the world. In the Amazing beginning, God created. He wrote that medieval France. He wrote this in the 1000s. He was living in France during the time of the First Crusade to talk about people calling Jews thieves for conquering Israel was completely, what seemed completely absurd. The question is, are the Christians going to rule or the Muslims are going to rule? You know, which yeah. infidels are going to conquer? But Rashi says to every Jewish child, Jews need an answer. And what's the answer? The world was created by God, and he gave one sliver of land, a tiny little piece of land the size of New Jersey, to one small people as an eternal gift and inheritance. The Jewish people have to realize this. This is our home. We were there 2,000 years before Islam was born. Yeah. And that uh, Robert... display of weakness, sadly, sadly, empowered the enemy and empowered the intelligentsia around the world to squeeze Israel even more and more and was it to stretch out its neck to be slit yet once again. Painful to say. Rabbi, can I ask a question about that, that Rashi that you mentioned? Because you're right, that at the root of all the discussions and the, the basis for the hostility towards Israel, even though, of course, it really is nonsense, but what they try to say is, you're occupiers, you're thugs, therefore they're resisting, all that kind of thing. Now, I know there's plenty of what seems to be pretty valid arguments about our right to be in the land, whether it's from an international law perspective, a historical perspective, indigenous perspective, self-determination, protection from prejudice, all these things. But it seems like Russia is pointing us to say that really we have to develop the confidence and the backbone to say this land is ours because the creator of the world designated this for us. And I'm wondering, do you think we need, do we need to start saying that publicly? Because I sometimes put this to people, even sometimes rabbis, and they'll say, well, you know, it depends. Some of them might be atheists who are listening and other people, they just won't respect that argument. And I'm thinking, it seems like that's what Rashi is saying. We've got to start saying. Look at the prophecy of Rashi. All the other arguments usually prove futile. All the other arguments, there's always a but. 
We've been screaming about the United Nations and the Balfour Declaration, 1917 in your country, in England. And of course, 1947 and 1948, and there was a Holocaust. And the world looks at us and says, oh, give me a break. Just because you suffered a Holocaust in Europe, that's why you're going to create another Holocaust in Gaza and in the West Bank. That's why you're doing genocide. Yeah, Balfour. Oh, Balfour. Balfour's been dead many. Oh, the UN. The UN also equated Zionism with racism. The same UN. The same UN is condemning Israel. <laughs> the leader of the UN, you know, was worried about Israel being disproportionate and not having a right to do it. What would UN? Suddenly the UN became, <laughs> really, you're following the UN? The UN wants you out of gas. The UN wants a ceasefire. So mm. we keep on getting stuck and stuck and stuck. You know what? It's so funny. When the Muslims speak, they don't have a problem quoting God and religion. And all the liberals respect them. All the left-wing atheistic liberals respect them. Even though they don't stop screaming, Allah Akbar, the most despicable ambitions to kill Jews, to kill Americans, to kill Western infidels. And everybody wants to hear their side. And we Jews who gave the world God, gave the world the Bible, are afraid to bring up the Torah. What I heard from the Rebbe, who's my mentor growing up, was that this is exactly what the Jewish people have to talk about. Of course, we should talk about our history. And of course, we should talk about the fact that we had two temples there and we're there 2,000 years before Muhammad existed. Of course, we should talk about that. But get to the crux of the issue. Half of the world respects the Bible. Christians believe in the Bible. Billions of Christians. Muslims believe in the Bible. They respect the Bible. They sense deep down how Jews should speak about Israel. They called Israel the Holy Land. The only ones who claim that Israel is a regular country are the Jewish people. The only ones who claim that the Jewish people are regular people are the Jewish people. Look what's happening. How is it that in Syria there were 500,000 people murdered? 500,000 people, tens of thousands of children, some of them with gas. I haven't seen a demonstration in London, my dear friend. Certainly not 100,000 people. I haven't seen a demonstration in all the universities in the United States. I haven't seen a demonstration in Manhattan. I haven't seen a demonstration in Australia for a half a million people murdered in Gaza. And what about what happened in Chechnya? 200,000 people? And how many thousands of children? Who knows? Who cares? <laughs> and what about the Kanga? And what about Darfur? And what about Jordan, et cetera, et cetera? And suddenly, is Israel really trying to defend itself Nazis? And the whole world is up in arms. Why? They're all saying one thing. You're a Jew. And we know it. You're a Jew, and we know it. We're the only ones who say, no, we're just regular people. We're regular people. It's time for the Jewish people to come back to our basic truth. The only reason we came back to the land of Israel is not because of the flaffle and the lafa and the chos. The reason is we're coming back to Israel as a continuation of dozens, 30, 40 generations of the Jewish people that goes back to Joshua and Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who received this piece of land as an eternal gift from the divine creator. And that's why we're here. And it's non-negotiable and it's absolute. It's eternal. Even if we want to give it away, we can't give it away. It's not even ours to give away. It's God's gift to the Jewish people. You want to live in our eternal home as mentioned, as civilized people, which means your life will be much better off than any other Muslim in the region. Pajalista, beautiful. But one expression of terror will be eliminated completely and absolutely. The Rebbe used to say that the greatest mistake of Israel was that after 1967, instead of maintaining this is ours forever and every Jew is going to be allowed to live everywhere, 
with full freedom, with full prosperity, and they'll be protected unwaveringly. You want to live among us in peace and respect and not killing our children? You will have the best life of anybody else in the Middle East, of anybody else in 22 Muslim countries. Instead, we said, no, we'll give it back. Uh, we understand. All we want is peace. And what they saw is a weak country that you can squeeze and squeeze. And with more terror, you're going to get more. And they were right. And then we gave them a Palestinian state in Gaza. And I have to say the truth. When I was talking about it in 2005, I had a friend, a classmate. He said, Rabbi Jacobson, maybe you're wrong. Maybe Arik Sharon is my right. We'll give back Gaza. They'll build a beautiful independent state. And life will be good. I said, you know what? If that happens, I will get up and say, I am wrong. You are right. And indeed, the left-wing philosophy will be proven to be right. And you know what would have happened? In a few years, they would have had a Palestinian state in West Bank and East Jerusalem. What happened is the day after, the same day, <laughs> the cemeteries were destroyed, the synagogues were destroyed, the greenhouses were destroyed, and rockets started to fly. Israel's greatest mistake was the first rocket that came from Gaza to Israel. They should have said this was a colossal mistake. We're going right back. They mm. didn't. Mm. As usual, we said... They're frustrated. They're angry. Let's trust them. They really want a future for their children. Maybe this will be a new Middle East. It'll be the Singapore of the Middle East. And what happened? They took the money and they built tunnels of terror and an infrastructure of terror. And Hamastan, the results we saw on Simchas Torah. But remember, what happened on Simchas Torah, they would like to do every single day of the year. Yeah. It's only because cool. God's grace and the IDF that they don't succeed. So the whole philosophy has to change completely. And okay. it's very difficult to say because we have become indoctrinated by starting to accept a dangerous narrative. So specifically, I'm sorry, Rabbi, I'm what... very passionate about this. You'll forgive me. <laughs> me too, me too. I think I think many people are, both Jew and non-Jew. Um, what kind of solution do you think we should be advocating for publicly as Jews now? <sighs> As the Rebbe used to say, the path of strength and decisiveness will save not only Jewish lives, it will save Arab lives. You know what the interesting thing is? I grew up by the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He always spoke about the fact that we would love to see everybody successful, everybody prosperous. We want every life to be saved. You know who was hurt by this entire philosophy? Of course, Jews, but also how many Arab children yeah, were killed? Yeah. Because, because we allowed their terror organizations to lead everybody. Yeah. yeah. And there are millions uh, millions of Shahids today who, who want that, who want that. You know, it's, it's another great fallacy when people keep on talking about the distinction between the people of Gaza, the Palestinian people of Gaza, and the Hamas terrorists, as though you had millions of people in Gaza who all they want is they want a Palestinian yeah. state and they would love to eat falafel with the Jewish people in Israel. And then yeah. you have a couple of rotten apples called Hamas. This is a monstrous lie. <laughs> who voted yeah. in Hamas 2006? Yeah. The residents of Gaza, when they were parading the body of the German Jewish woman after she was raped and mutilated, and they were parading her half-naked in the streets of Gaza. Yeah. Who, who, who yeah. was dancing? Yeah. Who was mutilated? Who, who was there in the street doing it? Regular people. I didn't even yeah. see one person say, this is wrong. 
Yeah. This is and evil. by the way, just just to be clear for our viewers, we're we're not saying that every single last man, woman, and child supports Hamas there, but it is the no, dominant culture. I'm not. It is. I know you're not. I'm no, not. It's... I'm not. But you have yeah. to recognize the fact yeah. that the Hamas monsters who murdered the 1,400 Jews yeah. a few years ago, they were all children. But sadly, sadly, yeah. you know, when the Nazis, I think it was one of the reporters in England, he's very pro-Israel. What's his name? Do uh... Douglas Murray. Douglas Murray, he made a, I saw an enemy, he made a, he made a very powerful point. He says, you know, the Nazis felt the need to hide their atrocities. Mm. The Hamasniks were sending them out to their parents, Facebook, you know, yeah. father, mother, look, I killed 10 Jews with my hands. So yeah. Talking about mothers and mothers in the hundreds of thousands, educating their children that Jews are the devil. We can't deny that fact. Of course, we want to protect every single child and, and a child by definition, a child by definition is something so precious and so dignified. But let's understand that when Hitler came to power, we didn't only blame the Nazis, we blamed the German people. This is just important to understand. You know, I think, I think that the most critical component is Israel has to display unwavering decisiveness, clarity and strength turning to the world and saying, we will never, ever, ever create any situation where we even risk the safety of one single Jew in Israel. Any compromise, any concession, any compromise, which will in the future and today risk potentially even one Jewish life is simply not negotiable. I believe Israel has to completely eliminate Hamas. And to really get the message across, to really get the message across, they have to rebuild the Jewish cities in Gaza. Say, this is our land for eternity. You want to live here with peace and respect, great. If not, you can find another place. The same is true with the West Bank. We don't even realize the dangers that are lurking in the West Bank, in Lebanon. And the Palestinians who live inside of Israel, if they would have a chance, would many of them not commit atrocities against the Jewish people? There's one way forward. The way forward is absolute unwavering declaration to the entire world. This is our land for eternity. This is God's gift to the Jewish people. Every Jew will live everywhere in this land we will eliminate and destroy every last vestige of terror. You want to live here as guests in the Jewish eternal homeland that's beautiful and wonderful. Turn to the world and say, we love you, we cherish you. We cannot allow ourselves sub to subject ourselves to another Holocaust. And here's the truth. Much of the Western world would be so happy if Israel does this. Of course, America can't say, go ahead and do it, because they have to say the right thing for the Arabs in the whole world. But they would be the happiest if Rabbi, Israel you know, would but, Rabbi, you know, you know, a lot of people say, I hear this time and again, they say, well, if Israel is too, let's say, too strong, too forceful, they'll lose U.S. support and therefore they'll be on their no, own. No, no, most of senators and congressmen who are sane and rational want this. Remember, Hamas is a threat for America. Hamas is a yeah. threat for the Western world. And what about Iran? And what about Hezbollah? What about they want every American dead? Yeah, but they let's just say even if we, but even if we didn't have American support, the problem is, you know, when you're confident, you inspire confidence. Yeah, when you're yeah. weak and you don't know who you are. You inspire weakness and you inspire criticism. If Israel would know who they are. 
they have deceived themselves sadly because yeah. of their compassion they wanted peace they wanted yeah. peace and they thought it would come and i'll tell you something else the response of israel today to hamas you know when it should have come it should have come with the first missile with the first rocket did you ever hear of a country that 20 years has that tens of thousands of rockets falling on bedrooms and schools and streets and homes and that's it Israel's philosophy was an iron dome. One Jew was killed. Okay, one Jew was killed. A family was killed. Okay, the Fogel family was slaughtered Friday night in their home. You remember in Itamar? The moment that family was slaughtered, just like they were slaughtered on Simchas Torah, it was one family. So they, okay, it was one family. There are rotten apples. The moment you have a situation where one Fogel family in Itamar slaughtered, slaughtered, literally like, like chickens are slaughtered Friday night in their home in Itamar. Israel should say, that's it. This game is over. There's not going to be another another hell in this country. We're done. We're finished. They did not. Yeah, yeah. They but tolerated Rabbi, I, it. You know what happens when you let cancer grow in the body? Yeah. It kills you. Of that's course, of course. But, but Rabbi, Rabbi, what I'm saying is, I, I think our attitude should be, even if we don't have American support, you know, the spirit of 48, we were on our own. And we we should do what is right, what is right for us. And... That's going to be sure, but I'm telling you even more. America will be the first one to celebrate, even if the president will have to make an official statement about <laughs> about yeah. respect and dignity of all people yeah. living in Gaza. Yeah. They, the yeah. Americans will be the first ones. They understand any normal person understands the danger who you're dealing with. What did America do with ISIS? What did America do with Al-Qaeda? Why didn't America say you have to respect, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda has children, ISIS has children, they have women, there's innocent people. What what was their response? What was their response? I don't understand. (laughs) What happened in the Second World War? What what about innocent Germans? The answer is don't blame America and blame Hitler. Blame Hitler. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Israel should tell everybody in Gaza, this place, this place is ours. You want to leave? Any innocent person could leave. If Hamas doesn't let them leave, tell Hamas you are the murderers. Instead, Israel becomes the murderers. And we believe it? Please. This is is insanity. Yeah. And and Rabbi, speaking of America, you know, it's interesting. A a few years ago, we had Jeremy Corbyn, who was the leader of the Labour Party, which was the opposition opposition party in Britain. And he came very close to potentially being prime minister. Um, And a lot of Jewish people who were Jewish supporters of the Labour Party felt incredibly uncomfortable and they had to leave. And I'm now seeing in America, um, you've got a problem with the far left, but I'm seeing signs of people in the conservative camp, let's say the hard right, um, just some uh, influencers, people out there, you know, Tucker Carlson, Candace Owens and others who are starting to articulate like real hostility on the Israel and even the Jewish front. I'm just, I'm curious, are you you concerned about this potential rise of anti-Semitism on the conservative right, which I didn't really anticipate? Yeah, this is this is a profound concern, you know. <laughs> I told I told a friend the other day, Jewish youth come to me a lot to ask questions, you know, teenagers and I think sometimes to schools, yeshivas, and they often ask a question, can you prove rationally that the Torah is divine? 
you know, why should we accept that the Torah is divine and not a fabricated document by a brilliant man named Moses Jefferson or Moses Washington? I mean, come on. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a valid question and it's an important discussion for a Jew who wants to commit his or her life to Judaism. Today, I look at them and I say, <laughs> just look at the news. Okay? This is inconceivable, inconceivable. You have a tiny little country, Israel, that was attacked in the most brutal of ways. It brought us back to the days of the pogroms in the Middle Ages, and even worse. Kristallnacht, 400 Jews lost their lives. Here, 1,400 Jews were murdered, besides the wounded, and besides, of course, all those who were kidnapped. And let's not talk about the way they were murdered. Nonetheless, the entire world is obsessed and up in arms against Israel. And as I said earlier, when in recent years, there were such massive genocides that claimed the lives of so many Arab children with nobody uttering, or uttering an outcry. So the rational person asks, what is going on? How do you explain this obsession from the left wing? And now, as you said, from the far right, professors, journalists, students in university. How do you, how do you explain it? How does London manage to get 150,000 people at a protest justifying the genocide of the Jewish people. From river to sea, Palestine shall be free, which means Hamas lives from the river to the sea, which means every Jew is dead. People in England in 2023? People in Australia? Students of Harvard University? Duke University? Yale University? You kidding me? In the United States Congress? In the United States Congress? You say, what is it? What is it about this little country? Jews don't constitute even one quarter of 1% of humanity. <laughs> Not even 1%. One quarter, less than one quarter, 0.2. Israel is like a match in a football field. What is this obsession about? I have no rational explanation unless I discover that every word of the Torah is true. <laughs> and the Torah wrote thousands of years ago that God said, I chose the Jewish people as my ambassadors to light up the world with truth, with morality, with ethics, with love, with the sense of destiny, purpose, spiritual oneness, holiness, and purity. You will be scattered all over the world, but you will never disappear, and you will one day return to your homeland. And literally, when you read the Torah, the Tanakh, the Bible, the prophets, and you look at the world, it's like, wow, wow. Every single word is true. The Jewish people simply live in the vortex of the universe, the interlacing link between heaven and earth chosen as divine ambassadors to elevate the world and make it a place of goodness and kindness. And evil cannot stand the Jewish people. Evil is allergic to goodness and holiness and wants to destroy it. There's absolutely no other way of explaining rationally how in the 21st century, 80 years after a Holocaust, so much Holocaust education, we have contributed so much to humanity over thousands of years, and all we can get for being slaughtered on October 7th is being venomously attacked that we are guilty because of apartheid and colonization. Wow, wow, wow. But what does this teach us? It teaches us, listen to this, our spiritual power. I have to say, many Jews are now depressed and lonely because the world we trusted so much stabbed us in our chest. I say... Look what a Yid is. Look what a Jew is. Tell me who your enemy is and I'll tell you who you are. 
when these vile monsters who could slit kids, babies' throats hate us? I want to know how much goodness and holiness is there in the Jewish people that the Stalins and the Hitlers and the Hamasniks and the Iranians and the Hezbollahs hate us so much. Wow, this means every Jew is so holy. This means every Jew is so powerful. This means that we are, we are the gate. We are the, the, the guardians of divinity in the world, of goodness in the world, of holiness in the world. So this is nothing new. It just does, tells us what our responsibility is, what our privilege is. And we can't escape it. And we don't want to escape it. It's the most amazing, amazing gift that we have. We have the power to change the world. If we have the power to turn the world, to make the world obsessed with us by, by trying to kill our enemies, look at the power of the Jewish people in the positive sense. And that's why I say today, let every Jew seize the moment. Become Jewish like never before. Learn about your Judaism like never before. Start living as a Jew in your daily life like never before. And let's be the light unto the nations in the most authentic and powerful and decisive way. We cannot eliminate every anti-Semite. We cannot. The anti-Semites have to fight themselves. It's their problem. It's not our problem. Our job is to protect ourselves against anti-Semitism in every conceivable way and never to internalize it again. Never to internalize that self-hate, but to be able to be the most spiritually powerful Jews, which means spiritual ambassadors of love, clarity, morality, healing, hope, and unity. Really powerful, Rabbi. Um, this kind of leads me on to the next series of questions, which is like moving forward. Um, how... Uh, you know, you said not every we're not, we can't be responsible for every anti-Semite, as you said, but but we do believe that the world has to naturally come to a place of well, what Mashiach is basically, which is acknowledging who the Jewish people are, acknowledging the God of Israel, the Jewish people coming having a, a peaceful, positive, uh, mutually beneficial relationship with everyone, with every human being, with all the nations of the world. So the question is. I think it seems to me like we probably do and do, do need to reach out to the world. We do need to tell them who we are. And we also, um, that that's going to, we sort of live in unprecedented times where we have the ability to do that now like never before. So can you help us imagine what are the stages going to be in which Jew hatred, it, it, you know, is, is, evaporates from the world, is eviscerated because it seems so deep to us. It seems coming from every single angle. It's coming out of all the cracks in ways that we haven't seen for quite a long time. And if you, as you say, it often can't be dealt with through reason because it's so deep. I think a lot of it's to do with envy and jealousy and God knows what. Um, but how, how can the world so a lot of it, to a place? A lot of it is subconscious. Remember, the Jewish people are connected to the ultimate purpose of creation. We were chosen to be the servants. Somebody asked me if, if, if chosenness is racist. I said the exact opposite. You know what we were chosen for? We were chosen to teach every person in the world that he or she was chosen. That's what we were chosen for. And, and, and Rav Cook, the first chief rabbi of Israel, once said something profound. He said, you know why the world is obsessed with the Jewish people? He said, because every culture had its turn to communicate its message to humanity. The Jewish people, we're here in center stage and we're still stuttering. 
we're still not communicating our message. So they're saying new, no, new, no, new, no, and that's why we're still in center stage. We weren't dismissed yet. And I think that's such a powerful message today. We have to stop stuttering. This is about a paradigm shift in education, in our family life, in our communities, and importantly, each of us individually, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. The Jewish people have been once again reminded in a very, very difficult way who we are, what our role is, what our priorities are, what our mission is. And I think each of us is in the army of God, but we have our unique division. I have to know what is my job? Is my job to be at home with my children? Is my job to sit and pray and study Torah? Is my job to educate children? Is my job to be on the front lines in Gaza? Is my job to be able to be a spokesman for the Jewish people to the non-Jewish world? We have tremendous, tremendous resources and opportunities. We have to come together. And every one of us feel that we are mobilized. We are mobilized like never before to bring redemption to our world, like you say, to bring Mashiach. And I think it begins by us fulfilling our role individually, communally, within our own communities, but also as ambassadors to the world. Absolutely. Do we know how everybody will react? We don't know how everybody will react, but here's the truth. The truth is that 4,000 years later, we're still here despite the attempts of many tyrants. And the reason that we're still here is because there's something about Judaism, there's something about Torah, there's something about mitzvahs that is an eternal weapon and allowed us to outlive every single enemy. I was talking to uh, thousands of campus students that had a rich virtual Zoom a few days ago. And you know they wanted to know, you know, what should we be doing besides the obvious? And I said to them, you know, think about one thing, think about one truth, and that is every empire tyrant dictator tried to eliminate us they're all gone we're here what's the secret of our immortality in science we look for the single trait that an organism has that is permanent to explain how it outlived all of its enemies and how it lived in such difficult circumstances do we have a permanent trait that was there with us from the first day we became a people till today in all places, in all times, in all circumstances that our enemies didn't have. Do we have such a thing? They had power, they had military prowess, they had culture, they had language, they had territory, they had affluence, they had money. What did we have from the day of Moses till today that none of our enemies had and it was always there with us in Israel, in the diaspora, in good times, in bad times, in crazy times, in beautiful times. What is it? And the answer is one thing. We had the Torah and we had the mitzvahs. The Torah that Jews studied and the mitzvahs that they observed and celebrated in daily life and bequeathed it to their children and students and grandchildren with love and commitment. That is one weapon that has accompanied the Jews from the day we became a people until this very day. It has never left us. We always clung to it. And the proof is in the pudding. Because of it, we outlived every single enemy and we are alive as creatives. I told the students, beyond anything, hold on tighter than ever to that eternal Jewish weapon. And I think when every single Jew today on a daily basis can embrace Yiddishkeit in their daily life in a most practical way, every single Jew, that will create a paradigm shift not only for ourselves, but for the whole world. When Jews seize the opportunity 
to become the humans and the people we are supposed to become, we will radiate such light to the world, such clarity to the world. Ultimately, the anti-Semitism will fade away. And this, of course, must always come coupled with decisive determination and strength, not being apologetic when we say we have a right to defend ourselves. No, we don't have a right to defend ourselves. We have a moral obligation to defend our children and eliminate every vestige of terror. We need a dignity that is anchored in Jewish celebration and spirituality and tradition. The world will respect and respects Jews who respect themselves, who respect their faith, their history, their God, their Torah, their tradition. As Rabbi Jonathan Sachs used to say, the world is embarrassed by Jews who are embarrassed by their Judaism. You know, if you look at the times that Israel was celebrated most in the international community, when was it? After the 67 day, after the six day war and after Entebbe. Yeah. They violated the laws of the Geneva Convention. That's when Israel was celebrated. Why? There should have been an outbreak of anti-Semitism. The answer is when Jews are really, really confident and they know that they're not going with their own arrogant power, but we are ambassadors of truth and of morality and of ethics. You know what happens? All the goodness in the world and all the goodness and innocent people around the world comes out to the fore. And people display that respect to the Jewish people. So the most important question we have to ask ourselves is who we are, who we are, and how we are going to be those people stronger and more united than ever. God will do the rest. <laughs> can, you articulate, can you articulate in a sentence what our message is to the world? What is the light of the Jewish people to the world in, in a sentence or two? Number one, the fight against anti-Semitism, the fight against terror, the fight against hatred is not a Jewish fight alone. We are the miners canaries of the world. <laughs> you know, the canaries are the first ones who die in the mines when there are noxious fumes, but they're not the last ones to die. A world that has no place for Jews and for Israel has no place for humanity. Every good person will suffer in the end. This is not our fight alone. We are the canaries. We are the representation. But every good person will suffer. Hitler began with the Jews. He didn't end with the Jews. Stalin began with the Jews. Didn't end with the Jews. Every good person needs to be mobilized in this war. That's number one. Number two, the ultimate message of Judaism is that every single human being was created in God's image. Every human being's life has absolute dignity. Our job in this world is to fight, to make this world a good place, a moral place, a kind place. For this, we have to distinguish between good and evil. The only way civilization will survive is if we embrace what we call the Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Noach, the civil code known as the seven Noahide laws. This is the blueprint of God for all of humanity. We are in this together. We must educate our children, educate ourselves to build cities, communities, countries, that are saturated and founded on the moral code of the seven Noahide laws. And at the core of them is an absolute dedication to the dignity of life and an absolute abhorrence to the destruction of human life. I think that's a good message. We can't be wishy-washy about this. We can't be... Yeah. We can be. Israel can be wishy-washy. The Jewish people can be wishy-washy because the destiny of mankind 
depends on this type of confidence, on this type of resilience, on this type of readiness. Yeah. Rabbi, lastly, I want to ask you a question. This is a slightly different question to the ones we've spoken about so far, but it's still on the same issue of what's happened in Israel. And I think this is so important, especially for people who are living in, a, in an observant communities, um, in from communities around the world, in Israel and around the world. I was sent um, a talk that was given, I assume, by, uh, I think it was a Rosh Hashiva, um, who was telling his students, and I don't know if it was, maybe if it came from him or didn't come from him, but it sounded like the message was very much, look, what happened on October 7th, it's a warning from God. We're in trouble. The Jewish people are, you know, need to do teshuva. And it was very much about like, we're, we're the ones who are, we're too, uh, you know, um, unworthy, I suppose. Or like, we, like we've, we've really got to um, repent and become better. In other words, it was very much victim blaming, um, perhaps saying because we're too secular. And I, I, I have to say that I've, I find this message to be very unhelpful and n not morale boosting at a time when we really need to build morale. I find it to be uh, quite toxic. Uh, it's victim blaming. And it's, I think it also is somewhat blind to reality because I think Rabbi Manus Friedman's talks about how like, what do you expect? It's been 2000 years of exile. We haven't heard from God for 3000 years. The fact that Jews are still no, nobody mitzvahs. Look, by the way, how much even quote unquote secular Jewish people in the army are rushing towards getting sitzid and other like it, it. It feels to me like it's not even accurate. Like it's like I think we're doing we're doing well. Of course, we should always be doing more and look to be taking on more. But it just feels like at the very least the wrong tone. And I wanted your reflections on this because I think this is something that needs a lot of clarification, especially for people who live and breathe the you know religious Jewish life. Excellent question. So, you know, I'm a student. I hope I could call myself a faithful student, but certainly I'm a student or aspire to be a student of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And I heard him speak almost every Shabbos about these topics and many other topics. And one thing I always saw, and that is the burning love to every single Jew and to the entire Jewish people, and the usage of words and phrases and expressions that would uplift the Jewish people, that would inspire the Jewish people, that would make them feel motivated and enthusiastic about what it means to be a Jew and what our role is in the world. We always have to ask ourselves this question. Am I saying words to express myself, my frustration, my anger, or do I want to be effective? <laughs> you know, think in a marriage, right? You communicate with your husband, with your wife, with your children. Do you want to just express yourself with all your resentment, or do you want to be effective? Let's ask ourselves, what message can be the most effective to lift up our people? What message can be effective to bring our people closer to the collective Jewish soul, to bring all of us closer to Torah, to mitzvahs, to Yiddishkeit, to Jewish eternity, to faith. What can bring the Jewish people closer to each other? That's the question. And then in my mind, I think the answer is very obvious. What we want to do is encourage the Jewish people. The Jewish people have been broken and shattered. There are thousands of families that are in mourning, that are grieving so deeply. 
thousands of other families that are living with such uncertainty and unfathomable pain. You know, for us living outside of Israel, it's not completely cerebral, but there's a certain sense of detachment. But I hear, you know, my friends, my students, colleagues in Israel going every day to homes, shiva homes. You know, a friend of mine, a rabbi, he asks me, what should I say? I'm going to a home where a father and his son were both murdered. A father and his son were murdered. A home where two brothers were murdered. They both went to fight and got the border of Gaza. The two brothers were murdered. What am I supposed to say? You know, we're dealing with this type of visceral anguish and pain, and not with one Jew or 10 Jews, but we're dealing about with tens of thousands of Jews who are affected either as neighbors or as relatives or a direct family or part of a community and part of a country. And how many parents have sent their children into Gaza? Right? We're dealing with a very, very sensitive and vulnerable time. What's our role? What's the role of rabbis, teachers, educators, thinkers, communicators? One role. And that is, number one, to love our people, to embrace them, to help them, to uplift them, to inspire them. And the very desired results to bring Jews closer to tshuva, closer to mitzvahs, closer to faith, closer to Hashem. How do we do that? How do we achieve that? We see today, when I go to a Jew, and with a tremendous love, I embrace him, and he can feel or she can feel my love, can feel my connection. Jews today want to be more Jewish. They need the feeling to be harnessed, to be directed. How do we do that? By telling them that they are horrific sinners and God hates them and despises them. I don't think that's effective. And as you it's said, I don't true. think it's true. Yeah, I don't think it's true. You're dealing with a holy people. Are there Jews who are misguided? Yeah. I spoke earlier about what I feel terrible mistakes that the Israeli leadership made. I felt... They had good intentions, but they were misguided. I'm talking about Jews who sacrificed their lives for Israel. I'm talking about great Jews. You're talking about Begin and Rabin and Sharon and, and many other, you know, Eshkol, great Jews, but I think they made grave mistakes. But our first job is to remember we're one people. We need to be here for each other. So I think today the way of inspiring Jews is through tremendous love, and tremendous positivity, believing in every Jewish soul, and we see it, and we could learn from our enemy how precious a Jew is, how holy a Jew is. We want to take that spark and fan it into a beautiful, beautiful flame. So yes, I think this is a time for all of us to be more Jewish than ever, for all of us to become closer to each other and to Judaism more than ever. And the best and most effective way of doing this is through positivity and infinite and authentic love and connection. That will create miracles. Anyone who's involved in this work sees it. When I go with a negative approach, besides it being untrue, which is important, it's also counterproductive. It produces the opposite results. You know, it's a very painful thing. There was a soldier. He came into a particular religious city and some young people attacked him and criticized him and cursed him. And then there was a woman who came to her defense and they started to scream at her. We are the parents and the teachers educating these teenagers. This is what it means to be a Torah Jew. That a, a man who came to Shul to Davin, he sacrificed his life. He's a reservist. He sacrificed that he left his family to go defend you. Hamas wants to kill every Jew in B'nai Brak and Yerushalayim, just like in Kfar Aza. 
to defend you, to defend you, go over to him and say, thank you, I love you, thank you, thank you, thank you. This is a Mulchemes mitzvah. This is a war of mitzvah. The Rambam writes in the laws of, Maimonides writes in the laws of kings. There are voluntary wars and there are obligatory wars. When somebody comes to attack the Jewish people, it's obligatory. And Maimonides quotes the law. Even a bride and a groom leave their chuppah to go assist in the war effort. So let's remember, if not for Tzahal, every yeshiva student in all of Israel and anyone who would be physically capable would be obligated halachically to go fight. So you have the merit that Tzahal, the IDF, in the hundreds of thousands are going to fight. And you could sit in yeshiva and study God's Torah and bring down amazing spiritual energy and love. Say thank you. You're partners. We're partners. This is what the Torah community must understand. <laughs> this, the, this, this division and this judgmentalism and this sense of superiority complex, I feel, is so misguided. It's so not in touch with the pulse of the Jewish people and with the calling of the Jewish people. I believe what Hashem wants from each and every single one of us is to rise to the occasion and to embrace every one of our brothers and sisters like never before. And it's precisely through that that we could make an amazingly powerful spiritual revolution in Israel and in the world. That's my opinion. And isn't the futility also of being so overly judgmental that these distinctions we have and these labels we give for, for different types of Jews, let's say, are really so shallow? And that, as I think Chabad and the Tanya was in somewhat, somewhat revolutionary in teaching, is that really all of us are, you know, wellsprings of godliness and light. That's the essence. That's the essence of it all. Without that, we are missing the point <laughs> i could study torah and i could be a genius and i could know lots of laws and i could try to be very pious and i could do all of the mitzvahs and it's amazing and incredible but without this core understanding of this teaching that every single jew is divine and if i don't see it it's because it's because my glasses are a little dirty <laughs> It's because my eyes need a little help. It's because I need to find the God in me. And then I'll see the God in you. And it doesn't mean I always agree with you. And it doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. And it doesn't mean we can't become better. But without that fundamental truth that Hamas knows. Hamas knows it. They know it. They don't distinguish. I think we forfeit our ability to really experience the truth of Judaism and the truth of the Jewish people. I think we are, we, we use religion as a crutch for the ego. And I think it can become misguided. And I think, I think maybe inadvertently, but we, we don't, we don't help our people. We create divisions and, and today you have such a historic opportunity like never before. The Torah community, what you call the from community, should be the first ones to appreciate the power of the moment. There is a tremendous arousal for Yiddishkeit in every Jewish heart. And we know why. It's not so mystical. Maybe it is, but we understand it because in times of crisis, Jews want to hold on to something eternal. We want to hold on. We want to be anchored in something so powerful during insanity. We want to hold on to something that is 
larger than what we see with our eyes or hear with our ears. When, when there's such crisis and pain, you need something. You need something to sustain you, to, to, to give you hope, to give you joy, to give you purpose. And we have that. <laughs> the secret of Judaism is the Jews felt that they have a relationship with God through Torah, through mitzvahs. We have that. These are the weapons of Jewish eternity, as I said. So Jews are craving for that connection. And when we can display that type of love and camaraderie and sense of, of, of empathy and connectedness, that's how amazing, amazing things can happen today that will enhance the Jewish world, that will enhance our spiritual well-being, that will enhance our Jewishness, that will enhance our social connection, that will bring Kiddush Hashem, that will bring so much holiness into the Holy Land and into the whole world. Absolutely. Well, hopefully some of the messages that we discussed today will uh, be shared through through this interview and through the video clips that will come from this. Um, Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much for making the time to be... I always say, I always say... No, I just, I always say, you know, and I say this to, to, to friends with a lot of respect. So, you know, if I'm thinking, I want to say something to my child or my spouse or a good friend or somebody I love. And I'm thinking, you know, will my words maybe have a negative effect? Or I could choose different words that will have a positive effect. Now, I might say to myself, no, I should speak harshly and negatively because that's the truth. And that's what they want to hear. But if I have a doubt that maybe my negativity is going to be counterproductive and it may be coming from my own, my own pain, my own unresolved issues, if I even have a doubt, you know, by saying loving words, you could never go wrong. <laughs> Somebody once told me that, 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 that Jew you have to dislike. I said, maybe, maybe not. But here's the deal. When I come to heaven, maybe they'll tell me, you know, there was a Jew you hated and you were supposed to love him. I'm going to be very embarrassed. But if they tell me there was a Jew you weren't supposed to like and you loved him, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, that should, be, that should be our greatest mistake. Remember, if you have to choose between the two, always, always choose the path of connection. You'll never go wrong with that. The worst thing you did was you loved a little more. But if you choose the other path, you may be making a tragic mistake. You may be destroying a soul. You may be destroying a relationship. It, except when we're dealing it. with Hamas. Yes, I'm talking about between brothers and sisters <laughs> yeah. who want to see the goodness, yes. who yeah. want everybody to live. You know, Jews disagree about a lot of things, but I think we all want every Jew to be safe and happy. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm talking about a family that wants everybody to be happy, even if we have serious disagreements. When you're talking yeah. about an enemy that wants to see all your children dead, then unfortunately... Unfortunately, nobody loves violence and nobody loves war. Nobody, no, besides Hamas, they love violence and they love war. We don't. But sometimes the only way to stop immoral violence is through moral violence. And then it's a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah because it's protecting innocent life. Yeah. Yeah. That was a workout. <laughs> <laughs> Well, sorry for putting you through that, Rabbi, but I assure you we'll have... Uh, make you don't have to be uh, sorry. It's waves. the call of the hour. The call of the hour is chazak, chazak, chazak. We have to remain stronger than ever, united more than ever, and strengthen each other. And remember that the power of faith and of Yiddishkeit is eternal. <laughs> and when we're connected to that, nothing will obliterate us. 
despite the mistakes we have made and despite the darkness that we see around us. Well, this is Rabbi Jacobson speaking to us from Muncie, America. Rabbi, we're so grateful for your time. I know how in high demand you are. I really appreciate it. I hope we'll be able to do more in the future. And um, thank you for all the brilliant work you're doing. Amen. Thank you very, very much for the opportunity. May God grant us all the courage and the ability to be able to fulfill our mission during this critical moment in Jewish history. Remember, our children are always going to remember how we reacted and how we lived during this time. And may we see the ultimate gula, may we see Mashiach Tzedkenu now. The Rebbe used to say, we want Mashiach now. I never understood. Now I understand. I also want Mashiach now. Amen. Amen. Thank you you very much for the privilege. Thank you. Mm -hmm.